0: If you've got a Bible, we are going to uh, continue our time in Acts chapter 8 tonight. You know, I love studying church history. Uh, I think it's an awesome thing that uh, we get to go together and read Acts and study what God did back then. And, you know, I think it's good to study the history of the church uh, because it tells us what we're made of. Isn't that good that it reminds us what we're made of, who we're made of? and what remains at work within us we get so down about maybe how things aren't like they used to be how the world and the church and all the things just aren't clicking like maybe they did back in the day whatever day that was uh but the substance remains the spirit remains the power remains the church is the same it looks different sounds different dresses different but the point of it is we are still the church of jesus christ Uh, and jesus said oh my rock i'll build it and nothing will stop it not even hell And if hell can't stop it, then we don't have to worry about all the little stuff that tries to. Uh, And and Acts has reminded us uh, of uh, of the blazing start the church got off to in the early days. Um, we've chronicled um, the the story there, how they prepared in the upper room, um, building off the gospels, what Jesus did in his earthly ministry, how it was going to continue through the church. We are still a continuation of what God began, and we've been studying that, and we've talked about the opening day there in Acts 1, Acts 2, uh, and then we really, Luke kind of sets the pace for how Acts is going to be told to us. Now, clearly, a lot more happened in the early days of the church than what is recorded, right? There's more than just what we have. This is what God wants us to have but this book does not chronicle every single day it chronicles the big events, the major things that changed history and that would impact lives. Of course there are many more people, John tells us that there are many more things that Jesus did but I couldn't fit them in a book, couldn't fit them in in, in books that the world could contain if I wrote them all down Uh, of course God told him what to write and gave him the inspiration that he needed same thing with Luke and Acts, Luke investigated and Luke tells us the version of the story that he feels like is going to move the message to more people and kind of tell this message in a, in a more cohesive way. And for that reason, I want you to pay attention that uh, the stories that Luke does tell and how he often will introduce us to an ordinary event um, an event that doesn't seem like anything big is going to come out of it, but then how God uses that ordinary event and does something extraordinary with it. In uh, and and, and Acts 3, remember, Luke just tells us about, hey, the disciples were going to pray. That's what they did every day. But on this one instance, they went and they, uh, they they encountered a man who they prayed over, who was healed, and who began to testify of what God was doing in his life, and how through that event, um, God did something spectacular, gave the disciples a platform, um, allowed them to face opposition, That then they did so with confidence confidence and boldness, and then they came out of that persecution or they came out of that opposition with more prominence and so much more potential. So if you look at Acts 3, you remember the story there at the Gay Beautiful, that launched the disciples a little bit higher up in their community. Same thing for Acts chapter 6. Remember, they just started a local ministry. They started a a ministry to help out widows, and God used a small conflict within that ministry uh, to launch the church forward. So what I I guess I'm trying to say is Luke gives an example of missions and ministry, and he does this throughout the book. He will give an example, which uh, one of many examples, but we don't have all of them. He gives an example of missions and ministry. Then he will detail how God did extraordinary things through ordinary But available people, and that word available is going to be repeated a lot tonight because that's the emphasis of this chapter and really the whole book of Acts, that it wasn't about how extraordinary they were, it was about how available they were. It wasn't about their ability, it was about their availability and what God can do with anyone who is available for him to use. So from that story in Acts 6, we meet Stephen. Of course, what what made Stephen a candidate to be a deacon? He was available. Yes, he was a good person. Yes, he was a decent person. He was a godly person. But what made him available, what made him, uh, you know, part of the the story is he was available for use. And he, he didn't have a problem waiting tables. He didn't have a problem doing menial things because he saw God's glory in those things. And, of course, because he was obedient in the small things, God gave him a big platform, didn't he? That Stephen went from being someone working in the food ministry to testifying for the gospel in the streets, in the city, and then, of course, he, became, uh, he was arrested and brought on trial and got this megaphone uh, opportunity to preach the gospel and tell the story of the Old Testament and how it all built up to Jesus. So Stephen suggests that any and all followers uh, could come against could, could, could face the trials that he faced and could overcome. He gives us that example. He is an example for us to follow. But, of course, Stephen... He overcame his faith and witness, but he died while doing so. And that shows us that even if we do face, um, face problems and face challenges that end up in our death, that's not our end because we believe in the one who came back to life from the dead. So, but Stephen's witness, Stephen's witness, we've learned, is a tipping point Um, for the church and for history. Uh, Stephen was made the example because of his relative newness to the faith, Um, yet he did such a good job defending the faith. He gave them more concrete material to use against the churches. And and what happens in the aftermath of Stephen's martyrdom is the lead lead, or the launch of state-sponsored persecution. So Rome gives gives Israel the approval to persecute the church on a state or on you know uh, organized level. Church uh, the persecution breaks out, led up by Saul of Tarsus, and and this causes a a big problem for the church. The church is forced to scatter from Jerusalem. Uh, No, they didn't just sit back and bunker down, and they didn't just wait for the worst. They didn't hide. You know they could have done that, but they didn't. Um, They scattered. Now, of course, number one, the reason they scattered is because their safety was on the line. They scattered because they could not stand still or they would die. But they also scattered for their mission. We see how this works hand in hand. This is why we can't talk about the scattering without also understanding that they had sort of reached their full potential in Jerusalem. Uh, That they, if you read Acts chapter 1 through chapter 8, you know, there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands that are coming to Christ in Jerusalem. So at some point, the city was saturated with the gospel, and it was time to move beyond this would not be what the most convenient thing, the most comfortable thing, the easiest thing. It was tempting to remain still, just like it is tempting for us to remain still, isn't it? But persecution would force their hand. Stephen's message reminds us that the church would be just fine, however, On the move. Because what was Stephen's message? God is not stuck in a building. God is not stuck to a day, a place, or a time. God is with us so you can kill me, but I'll be with him. And you can persecute the church, but wherever we go, God will be with us. We're not contingent on the temple and on this sacred ground. It's our history, but it's not our future. So you see how all these things work together, don't you? Uh, So this church needing to continue preaching the word in danger in Jerusalem scatters to make sure the gospel does not die with them in case they were all killed. Now, God didn't need them, but this was his choice of expansion, right? He called them to be his witnesses so people could see how God changed lives and how he could change theirs. God intended on it being spread person to person, life to life. So, in their scattering, suddenly they were in a vulnerable place, lacking any security except the gospel they preached. Don't you see how all of a sudden their backs were against the wall, but they didn't blink an eye, did they? They just picked it up, and, and that one minute they're persecuted, one minute they're scared, the next minute they're bold and they're preaching the gospel because they had the security of the gospel that was greater than the security of this world. The church was driven to the margins in Acts 8, going to places and people they maybe would have avoided otherwise, which is what we talked about last week. Now, while all this is coming together and as things change so rapidly, there are some questions that loom over this change in pace and over this change in environment and change in circumstances. Would this break their momentum? I mean, they were you know, down to a pretty good routine, and they were making a lot of inroads. They were making a lot of impact on their community. The church was growing. People were coming to faith, and the church was you know, doing things for their community. So would this scattering break their momentum? Because all of a sudden, they wouldn't be in the same place. They wouldn't all be working in the same vicinity, and they would be working under duress. So would this break their momentum? And, and, and the question would be, would this maximize or would this minimize their potential that we've seen is so great? The immediate answer that we read about and learn about in Acts 8 is that they prospered in this crisis. With all the changes taking place, taking taking them out of their comfort zone, the church grabs another gear that they did not realize they had. From this point on in Acts, this is a turning point. So you can mark in your Bibles from Acts 8 forward, the church goes from local to global. Now it doesn't all of a sudden become a global thing. It takes a few years, but by the end of Acts, after 30 years of the church from beginning to end of Acts... The churches all around the world, the known world at the time, and of course here we are all these years later, definitely a global movement, but it didn't start out that way. But Acts 8 is a crucial moment in it becoming that. Jesus, of course, said they would reach the world, but surely no one could have imagined that as quickly, uh, that it would happen as quickly as it does, that they would reach and change their world in a generation's time. Of course, God supernaturally oversaw all of this and had his hand on this, but I don't want to undermine the human agency of it all. In fact, to dismiss the human agency is to dismiss God's agency because the premise of Acts is the Holy Spirit wanting and offering to empower people. Now, God didn't need anybody, but what is Acts all about? He wanted to use people, right? He wanted to set his spirit into people to use them to glorify his name. So the premise of Acts is that the Spirit in Acts chapter 1 says God wants to use you and offer to empower you. So the story of Acts highlights... People who made themselves, what's the word? Available. Get used to saying that because we're going to say it a lot. They were available to him. So God wanted to use people. So what does Acts tell the story of? God using available people. What makes them stand apart? What can we learn from them? Well, perhaps the biggest thing is, and this is, so, this is a big deal, the available people refused to replace Jesus in the mission with idols and Idleness. Now, it might get quiet, but that's okay. The disciples that made themselves available, they refused to play, replace Jesus in the mission with idols and idleness. You know, we don't have idols like the ancient world did. We're sophisticated creatures, aren't we? But we still idolize and worship things of this world, don't we? Of course we do, you bet we do. And I know, I know, I know, maybe we can't really detect our idols but I, I can tell you how we can discover them. We, how can we tell what our idols are? If we reverse engineer our excuses for not prioritizing Jesus and his mission, we'll find our idols. As in, you know, oh, I don't have idols, but hey, I prioritize things over Jesus, don't I? I don't always put his mission first, right? So if I reverse engineer my excuses, I discover My idols. So why aren't we going? Why aren't we exalting Jesus? Why are we putting other things first? If we follow the breadcrumbs, the excuses or our lack of drivenness reveals what we idolize and what we prioritize instead. And uh, And these things are not always, usually they're never, things that are directly contrary to God, defiant against God. They can be anything that hold us back. And what Acts 8 begins to show us is the disciples forsake their prominence, their privilege, their comfort, their prosperity to continue the mission, to expand the mission field from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, which is what Jesus said they were to do. The church was willing to break away from their idols, and in doing so, remaining faithful to God, they unlocked a power of God that they probably would have not tapped into otherwise. So what's important to note is that God's power through them wasn't always indicative of people's response to them. So this is going to be one of the first bumps in the road. As uh, So far in Acts, we've seen they go on the mission field, many believe, and then some of the religious leaders... You know, uh, oppose them. But we're going to see as they break out beyond Jerusalem, they begin to encounter some opposition. It's not just the religious leaders persecuting them. It's just some general people that just aren't going to believe or just aren't going to respond. And that's, that's normal. That's going to happen. It's not always going to be people lined up ready to believe. We're going to encounter some opposition. We're going to encounter some difficulties. We're going to encounter some challenges. We're going to encounter some people that, quite frankly, that Satan is using to try to prevent us and try to destroy our mission. That's going to happen. So we should be encouraged not only by the successful missions, but even the unsuccessful ones, because God was with them, and they learned more about Him with each step of obedience to Him. It's not always about the size of the, the, the result of the mission. It's about our obedience in the mission and what we learned in it. When we develop, when we develop a desire to know God, we will find joy and uh, we will find joy even in reverse those, even in challenges and struggles. Because they still got us closer to God. I think the church so often we do something that didn't reach a lot of people so we don't do it anymore. But we undermine the fact that we learned a lot about God in the process. That if we just do it for the results and the numbers then we won't ever do anything else again because we're never going to measure up to what they did on Pentecost. We're never going to do what Jesus did. We're never going to do the thing to the number and the size and the scale that he did things. So then we shouldn't even try if we're all worried about the size and the numbers of it all. what, What do we do it for? We do it because we're obedient to God and we can find joy in that obedience and we get closer to God even if there isn't always the success that we might were looking for. Even if it means that we face challenges and struggles in the process. See, this is what a life free from idols and full of God's peace and power looks like. So in Acts 8, Philip has taken the gospel to Samaria. We talked about Samaria last week, while they wouldn't normally ever went there, a place the gospel and its Jewish believers would feel uncomfortable. But the mission was greater and was worth it. And we learn from Acts 8, particularly verses 4 through 8, that many believed in Samaria. Unclean spirits came out of people. People that were sick were healed, and there was great joy in the city. But (laughs) this chapter also highlights a certain Samaritan, who saw an opportunity to, to, to potentially leverage this supernatural power he was witnessing, he saw an opportunity to leverage it for himself for his own gain. He had no interest in giving his life to God. He had no interest in joining the church, but he saw an opportunity to make a name for himself as he supposed the disciples were doing for themselves. But we see that there's a contrast in what they were driven by and what he was driven by. So with that in mind, let's continue reading Acts 8, 9 through 13. We're introduced to a certain man named Simon. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. (laughs) Claiming that he was someone great. He wanted to be someone great, but he wasn't. To whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God, as in this man possesses the power of God. Of course, they were about to meet people that really possess the power of God, and that's the point of this. They heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So we see that they were saved from this witchcraft, from this sorcery, from this just really demonic religion that they were uh, captured by and uh, taken aback by. That we see them being saved from the world into Christ. Classic example of people coming out of the world into Jesus. that's what God can do to anybody and everybody listen if you doubt what God can do to our world here are people who are literally worshiping a sorcerer I mean we watch movies about this we can't even imagine this being real Right here's a man who literally was claiming to be a sorcerer and was, you know, bewitching people with his tricks of his trade. And God moved in with the gospel and literally changed their lives and saved them from hell and saved them from Satan's power. So if God can do that, listen, He can do anything. But what is the key? They preached the gospel. They opposed what was false and they preached what was right and what was true. Many were baptized. Because of the name of Jesus Christ, so Simon himself also believed, and I think Luke is wanting us to ask. Back. I won't think Luke wants us to stop and say, "Did he really?" Because we learned, of course, later on in this that uh, it wasn't genuine, but he believed, and then he was impressed by what he was witnessing, and he was baptized. He continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So we have this idea that Simon is fascinated by the wonder of it all. He is fascinated by the size of the movement, by the success of the movement. And, of course, we are told that he was a man who claimed to be someone great, and he actually meets someone who was great, and he gets a little bit jealous of this. And he actually isn't interested in being a part of this So what, as to what he might could gain from it. So Simon was impressed with Philip, but Philip seemed to be making a name for himself. Of course, Simon thought, well, here's this guy. He's the next me. He's the real version of me. I've been fooling people. Here comes a guy who really has the power of God in his life. So Simon thought, well, you know what, Philip, you're making a name for yourself, so how about you help me make a name for myself? He saw this as a means of fame before him. Listen, ministry is full of people like this. Okay, I'm not not above this sort of temptation. Ministry, these platforms and these microphones draw people like that in. Philip seemed to be making a name for himself. Of course, we're talking about him all these years later. Simon said, I want some of that. <laughs> Simon was a magician, according to the text. Magician, sorcerer, sorcerer sounds more official, but magician is really what, what the word is there. So what does this mean? I want to talk about this for a minute because we don't talk about this sort of stuff in church much. We probably won't talk about it really, you know, a lot uh, in, in the future unless it comes up, and it's very rare that it does. Uh, so I want to talk about ancient magic ancient magic i'm not going to pull a rabbit out of a hat this is not that kind of magic this is almost certainly demonic activity now, let's try to understand uh, this. Uh, dating back to the Old Testament, God had been making himself known to the world through Israel. And we read the Old Testament. God was doing wonderful things. He was making miracles happen, right? Especially in Egypt, when, in the story of Exodus, when God was doing signs and wonders. And what was his reason for doing those signs and wonders? To oppose the the the, the 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 delusion that Egypt was under from Pharaoh and his magicians, Janus and Jambres, that we hear about from the Apostle Paul. So God began to do signs and wonders to disprove their power and prove his own power and all throughout the old testament we see god doing signs and wonders doing these miracles why so that they might believe that he is the one true god so that they not believe that as he's doing things physically he can do something greater spiritually that's the whole point of that these signs and wonders they're temporary but what god can do to a heart is eternal and that's the draw of it all or should be so part of his revelation in the old testament um, was manifestations of his power so keep that in mind The ancient world responded to Israel, and it's one true God with many counterfeits. Remember Moses with the staff, Janice and Jambres with their staffs. They countered the miracles of Moses, yet they were always inferior. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus showed up, God in a body, and what do we see an increase of in the New Testament? We didn't see anything like this in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see a widespread presence of demonic activity, particularly possessions. Now, I don't think that it's really hard to figure out why. God in a body had showed up, and God was using his spirit through the person of Jesus Christ. God in flesh, putting the spirit out into the world. So don't you, should we be surprised by the fact that Satan, who has already had a power over this world, began to try to counter that, to try to oppose what Jesus was doing? God in a body, and here you have Satan trying to find whatever body he could get into, even if it meant pigs. So why are, there, why are these, these widespread demon possessions in the New Testament? Because Jesus is God in a body, and Satan said, you're not taking my world from me that quickly. I'm going to fight you, whatever I've got to do. I'll take control of any weak and vulnerable person I can. He even got one of Jesus' own right-hand men. That's how active he was in trying to oppose the work of God. So Satan, of course, he countered the incarnation of God in Christ. And, of course, the indwelling work of the Spirit in Christians, but mainly the Incarnation, but it continued on in Acts. As God was filling hearts, Satan was trying to take control of people just the same with temptations and possessions. Satan took many weak, vulnerable under his power beyond just possessions, but through those, but through those he gave himself, uh, those that gave himself over to him to be his servants. So this is something we read a lot about um, in extra-biblical literature in terms of sat- satanic magicians and people trying to, you know, people controlled by the devil or using the devil's power to try to take, to influence people, even though they didn't claim to be representing, representing the devil, they clearly were. Um, ma- magic in the ancient world was practiced by pagans, even Jewish people, who sought to force the hand of the gods or the hand of God. Remember Balaam, the prophet in the Old Testament? Balaam wasn't Jewish. Balaam was, was, a, was a pagan uh, prophet from the land of Ur, the land of Abraham's uh, original days. He was an ancient witch doctor. He claimed to have the ability to talk to animals, and use animals to manipulate people, which is kind of ironic because of how his story ends. He claimed to have the ability to talk to, to talk to animals to manipulate people. He was hired by the king of Moab to curse the Jewish people. And of course, God got his attention by, of course, speaking through a donkey. Uh, and of course, that surprised Balaam because he didn't actually think that was going to, he didn't actually hear from animals until that one time he did. So ancient magicians would use incantations, conjure potions, and cast spells. And no doubt, um, many had the power of Satan behind them and through them. So this seems ominous. I know this seems outlandish. It seems like wow, that's just stuff I see in movies. How could that be real? But but it's not contrary to the power of Satan and sin that we've just accepted and we've just you know normalized as human nature. That we don't think about Satan working through working in this way. But Satan's power is all around us and he controls lives to this day. We don't label it as possession. We don't label it as this sort of this sort of person who's given themselves over to Satan, but he's very much still trying to manipulate people and trying to control people with his fallen power with the nature of this fallen world. Listen to how the Bible describes sin and what it means to be dominated by sin in Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked So as in, when you were dead in your sin, you weren't just laying around waiting for somebody to pick you up. You were walking about under the power and controlled by the power of sin. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. What does that mean? The air, it speaks of the atmosphere as in it's inferior to heaven. It's the spirit of this world, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience that we were a part of prior to being saved among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Now, that sounds pretty pretty bad, doesn't it? I mean, it's not, hey, I'm not a magician, and I'm not using satanic incantations to try to spellbound people, but that still says, hey, we're controlled by that sinful nature of which comes from the devil, that comes from the enemy that is just as demonic. Now, we don't want to talk about that we don't want to feel that makes us feel bad because we don't want to be put in the same category as possessed people I, mean, I might be sinning all the time and I'm not possessed you know we're more more sophisticated than that aren't we but don't you see it's the same stuff that controls us even as Christians we struggle with this don't we John writes to us do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if the love of the Father is not in him, one, what is in us? Well, John will tell us. For all that is in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Now, John later on in chapter 4 says that the world is, of course, influenced by, controlled by, spellbound by The devil. So this lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, it's this desire to control, this desire to have, this desire to be somebody by the world's standards, Satan spellbound with lust and addiction, and that's every bit as demonic as magicians who sought to leverage his power for spectacle and fame, don't you think? You know, maybe that, maybe we want to kind of we want to put sins in categories, don't we? You know there's really bad stuff over here, people that worship the devil, and there's me over here that might tell a lie every once in a while. And don't put me in that category. Well, hey, look at what John does. All that is in the world, I mean, John, I mean, all that's in the world, you're going to put me in the same category as those people. I mean, there' people locked up, people in place people that are doing terrible, terrible, terrible things. I'm not in that same category. Now, I wouldn't put you in that category, but John would. So, I love you. Maybe John doesn't. <laughs> but really, come on, let's be honest. We take the teeth out of the Scripture, don't we? Because we don't want to be convicted. Satan, of course, uses the same power. In this text, Satan once again essentially confesses, through his servant, that his power is nothing in comparison to God's. Remember how we saw Gamaliel say, hey, you know what, we don't have the right thing, they got the right thing, but let's not tell them because we don't want them walking around thinking with more confidence than they already got. Remember when the, the, the council said, clearly they've been with Jesus, clearly God's with them and we can't stop them? So here you have one of Satan's own men observing the church and he says to himself, they got the real thing. And my, the wool I've had over these people's eyes is about to be pulled off, or it has been pulled off. But, but this time... Simon, under Satan's power, doesn't want to lose his own over to God. So he distracts Simon from the true message here with the temptation of gaining even more worldly fame and recognition. So Satan, or Simon, heard the gospel, you know, joined the movement. I think he, maybe it was some some sincerity there. Maybe it wasn't all malicious. I mean, he was literally under the preaching of God's word, under the gospel teaching. But Satan distracts Simon with The temptation of gaining even more worldly fame and recognition. And here's how we are introduced to that. Verse 14. Now the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria received the word of God. So they sent Peter and John to them. Who when they had come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had not fallen on them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So let me explain this. Did the apostles have to verify Philip's work? You may hear someone teach that or someone say that, that Peter and John had to come by and confirm that Philip was actually doing the right thing. That's not what's going on here. Um, I think this is just God acknowledging the significance of the moment. He wants us to put a flag in the ground and say, wow, this is Pentecost for the Samaritan people. This is their beginning. God started in Jerusalem. Remember Acts 1 8? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So this is kind of the next tent pole in the ground. God started at Jerusalem, and the same thing that God did in Jerusalem God has done in Samaria and we're going to see this same sort of laying on of hands the Holy Spirit falling later on when they first get to Greece and they first get into the Roman Empire not because the Holy Spirit falls in different times and you don't some people have him some people don't if you're a Christian you've got the Holy Spirit you received him when you were saved don't worry about that the Bible teaches that But in Acts, we see him fall in these incremental moments because every time they go to a new area, to a new territory, there would be this moment of, hey, this is legitimate. This is the work of God. He started in Jerusalem. He's doing it in Samaria. He's doing it in Greece. He's doing it in Rome. So we see God put these flags in the ground so that we'll pay attention and say, wow, he's really going everywhere. But from this point on, everybody receives him when we believe. But in Acts, God wanted to make this statement that this was the continuation of his work. We see God confirming his commitment to the world, territory at a time. Every territory the gospel spread to was as legitimate as the beginning. So they had their own little moment as they had in Jerusalem here in Samaria. And it might not mean much to the Jews because they already had theirs, but to the Samaritans, it was a big deal because this was God saying, y'all are in too. Just like he would say to the Greeks and to the Romans, y'all are in too. And of course, all these years later, we're in too. And that's incredible. I hope that makes sense. By the end of Acts, the Spirit will have fallen on people all over the known world, and, that wouldn't be, and it wouldn't be earmarked uh, by moments like this every time um, because the point of the message would have been gotten across. But in this moment, Peter and John are showing the church's submission and deference to, the, to God's authority In God's glory. So, this is not about them carrying God's power in them and having to lay their hands on these people because they were better than them and God wasn't going to do it unless they let Him do it. God was not waiting on them to say, You can go somewhere. God went wherever He wanted. Don't worry. But notice what this is a moment of. The church is saying, hey, this is not our movement. This isn't Philip's movement. I mean, you know, Philip could have easily been swept away by this people because they had made Simon their, their hero. Philip could have been the next guy in line. But what, what is this moment? It's a moment of humility for Philip. As Peter and John were arrested for preaching the gospel, here Philip is being humbled. And this isn't to knock him down. This is just the church's way of saying, hey, it isn't about us. It's not about our guys. There, it's not about any one of us. This is God's movement, and he's using us to spread his flame. This is God's authority and God's glory. Philip is just a messenger. Simon, is, Peter, is just a messenger. John is just a messenger. God's working through us, but we're, you know, we're, we're not the, the, the one that's keeping him from anybody or taking him to anybody. God is in control here. Notice the contrast, though. Simon sees this as something else. That's why I make that point. Simon sees it as something else. He sees mere men with the power of God at their fingertips. And he's thinking, wow, they just walked in and just prayed over these people and now they've got the Spirit of God. I mean, whoa, what do I got to do to have that at my fingertips? Because you see what kind of mindset he's had all this time. It's me, I'm making my name great, I've got power, pay me money, and I'll, do, I'll show you some more. So Simon, in response to seeing what he thinks is mere men with the power of God at their fingertips, in verse 18... When Simon saw that through the laying on of hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. And this is crazy. He says, give me this power also that uh, anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, hey, guys, I could take this movement. I could take this show on the road. Are y'all charging money for this? Because y'all really should be charging money for this. Y'all could really you know, make a lot of bank out of this. These people will do whatever you tell them to do. And y'all have that kind of power? I mean, you, Peter, your shadow, your shadow is healing people? I mean, come on, Peter. What, you know, what are you charging by the hour? What? You're poor? You're homeless? You're broke? What are y'all made of? So you see, Simon does not think like they think. Of course, they had to be broken from their former way of thinking because of what God was doing and what God had taught them. Simon wants what they've got. But notice the difference. The apostles were mere vessels through whom God worked. Simon wanted to contain God and cause him to do his bidding. See the difference? Acts is the story of God working through people, doing what he wanted through those he chose. Simon wants the story to be God working for him. So it's God through people. Simon wants it to be God for him. So it's one thing to be available for God, To work through us it's another thing to attempt to make god a genie which is what simon wants to do i mean he's a magician so he probably taught he probably you know i don't know genie the culture of the middle middle east right hey i want i want god to be my genie in a bottle and if i can actually you know convince people that i've got that kind of power man i'll be somebody so one is faith the other is magic christianity witchcraft god demonic This is an important distinction for us to understand as we translate the practice in Acts to our own faith in our own day and age. Acts is the story. Acts is the story of people working for God and God working through people. It's not a story of God working for people. You hear that? It's a story of God working through, people working for. It's not a story of God working for people and being at their disposal God's power cannot be manipulated nor conjured. He works to save, complete, and make whole those who trust in him. Simon offering money to Peter is an obvious sign that he didn't trust God, and he wasn't trusting in God to make him complete. He was trusting in this world to give him meaning. He was trusting in money to make him more money. Not that different from us, is it? And you see how this has crept its way into religion, into the church don't you? So what are we to gather from this text, from this episode? The disciples had a heart to be used by God and see God improve life through improve lives through them. What, what is the disciples all about? God use us and change lives through us. Simon had a heart to use God and see God improve his life. See the difference? One, the disciples, they want God to use them and they want God to change people through them. For God's glory. Simon wants God to to be at his disposal and he wants God to improve his life for his own glory. So you see the stark contrast between these two parties. Peter and John don't come down for the glory or for the fame. They come down for God and to benefit the church. That's why Philip went to Samaria in the first place. Simon, like many religious movements, sees godliness as a means of gain, which is sadly seen in the word-faith prosperity movements to this day. Paul writes about this in 1 Timothy. These people are depraved in mind, deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of personal and worldly gain. But those who desire to be rich, and you can replace rich with famous, powerful, you know, wealthy, whatever it is of this world, they will fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I mean, Paul really pulled out the description there, didn't he? For the love of money or the love of anything of this world is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Simon was the first of this kind of religious leader that tried to get a footing in the church. And don't you think, don't, don't even imagine that this has not continued to be a problem through the years. What we learn from this, what we should learn from this, our gain is not found in our fame, but in God's. We make much of our lives by making much of his name, not ours. This is where so many of us go astray, where this world deceives and distracts so many of us. Listen to Peter's rebuke in closing. Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. Much like Satan and his demons in the days of Jesus, when called out for his true nature, he was speechless because he couldn't deny what Peter had just said. Our hearts can be right with God, however, if we see that knowing him and making him known is the greater treasure, a greater treasure, than owning any prize or any power of this world. Over in 1 Timothy, Paul contrasts the treasure of this world with true treasure and true riches. Notice how detached Simon is from God. He says, you pray for me because I know I can't because he was so far from God. This religion doesn't seek to improve our relationship with God. It only prioritizes our relationship with ourselves. Beware of such warped versions of Christianity that make it all about the world and don't improve our walk with God. This little hiccup does not stop the church from continuing its mission. Acts 8.25, says when they, it says, when they heard, had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of Samaritans, so they walk away without any disturbance by what had just went on. This was going to be something they would face and what we continue to face as they stood for what was right. People clinging to idols into this world. We see them once again, though, refusing to do that. In this instance, the idols they could have made themselves to be. Simon supposes that the fulfillment, fulfillment is found by making his name great. The disciples show that it's rather found by continuing the spread of Jesus in his name and building his church. So what should we learn from this episode of Acts 8? What we learn is a testament to availability. We've said that word a lot tonight. The disciples were available. They made themselves available. They cut loose of idols. They focused on God, his fame, over and over and over again. They weren't distracted by the world. Are we available, truly available, to be used like these men were? If we are, God is able to work through us and do great things through us. Simon was chasing after an anointing of some kind. The disciples showed that all of us can have this if we're just available to be used by God. Simon was known for his ability and wanted some greater ability to make him more famous. The disciples focused on making God famous. And what sets them apart is their availability for him. Open for God to do whatever he pleases through them. And all these years later, Saved from a few verses in Acts 8, who do we remember? Not Simon the sorcerer. I think that's pretty obvious. Oh, that we would be available like these men, Peter, John, Philip were. What a difference, a good difference, the right kind of difference we might could make. We may be forgotten, but God for definitely will not be, and he will be known by more as a result. Let me pray for you God thank you for this word that shows us a contrast between this world and your kingdom and God it's so easy to talk about Simon in a way that we would never put ourselves in that category but as we get closer to the surface we're not that different are we he was about his name and his fame he was about his ability and gaining more He was about trying to increase his stature in this world and about making someone out of himself. Lord, that is something that religion often appeals to people because of, and even Christianity has been warped to try to bring people in because of. But Lord, help us to see the joy and the gain and the treasure that we see in the disciples Peter, John, and Philip's heart. How they saw that your name and your fame was the true goal of it all. That they put you first and they weren't worried about taking a back seat because they knew that true treasure and true joy was found by exalting you. They knew that that you could use them. They weren't trying to use you. They knew that they had the power of God working through them. They weren't trying to make the power of God work for them. So Lord, help us to follow their example and help us to go into a world and love people and serve people and make a difference for people like they did and not follow the ways of Simon, the sorcerer. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, amen.